This is episode 13 of Free is in Freedom for Tuesday, 5 July 2011 of the Common Era. Hi, I'm Karen Sandler. And I'm Bradley Kuhn. This is Free is in Freedom. That's right. So we have two topics for folks today. But before we get to that, we should,、uh, we should, we, we said we would do this for、uh, Billy Crook, who wrote in <laughs> rather amusingly and pointed out that, which you were sort of getting at pretty clearly in the previous episode. I think so. To point out that he got the Oddcast last week and wrote in dutifully saying, I must have the wrong feed because you said in the Oddcast that if this were the most recent episode, it must be the wrong feed. Of course, it was going to be the most recent episode.、Uh, I don't remember actually if I said so. I don't remember if I said it in the, if we re recorded that part or not. So I remember in one of our recordings I said, but. Obviously, it will be the last episode for the next little bit until we have a new one. Well, yeah, and I, I thought I said if it's not June 2011 or something, too. I thought I said but that. But maybe we re recorded that part. But anyway, so he, he trolled me successfully because he got me to write back and say, well, here's the feed you should be using. Because I am using that one, but the last episode says、right. that I don't have the right feed. So now that's not、Good、true、work. anymore. That's not true <laughs> anymore because now this episode, and if you got this one, you probably are subscribed to the right RSS feed. Right, unless you got it from somebody else. Right, because it is CC by SA, so you c o u l d get it from all sorts of different places, and more people may start redistributing it eventually. And we hope they do. Yeah, well, we gave a license for them to do it, so. Yeah. And we won't sue them if they do. I'm assuming they're compliant with the CC by SA license. Right, I, I, I doubt we would sue them anyway. But, well, don't say that because I don't want to start violating CC by SA. Don't but, violate our license. Yeah. But、uh, that's one of the things we're going to talk about. Did、so, so、you say that somebody used a, clip, used a section from. I think they might have. I'm not sure. I got this weird dent from somebody saying, thank you for explaining this issue on this weird online radio show that I wasn't on. So I think maybe they used a clip from me、huh. from somewhere, but I don't know where. And I didn't have time to research it, so I, I don't know exactly what it was. I didn't even listen to it. So it was like some media format that I didn't recognize because it wasn't free software. So, do we、Beautiful. talk about our two topics yet?、Or? So, no, we haven't talked about it because we want to give credit to Billy, very good troll,、um, <laughs> and, and, and well deserved、uh, to us, or to me anyway. And we have two topics today. So, we'll, we'll talk about the second segment per, first in case people want to jump forward. We're going to talk about issues of applying for 501c3 status and some things that are going on at the IRS right now with regard to delayed C3 applications. And if folks want to listen to that, they could jump ahead now. And before then, we're going to talk about pastry.、Uh, well, I, I, it's, it's all because I, this is basically because I, I couldn't, there's not even a free software tie in. Let's put it, I'll tell you that. <laughs>、right、it, I mean, there, there is kind of, but I think generally it's just an interesting topic related to legal issues. And I felt it was on topic for us because it's related to non lawyers' understanding and, and using the legal system. I saw this documentary last night called Hot Coffee. Which is centered around the case that was well known in the US. Oh, the McDonald's case. Correct, where a woman was burned by the coffee. And they actually start out the documentary by pointing out all the things people have wrong about that documentary in the sense that they think the facts are different than they are.、Uh, like, for example, she wasn't actually driving、uh, at all while she was 
when, when she was burned. She wasn't? Nope, she was parked. They were parked. And she wasn't even in the driver's seat. She was in the passenger seat. Wait, what? She was... In the passenger seat, and they were stopped. Wow. They, they pulled away from the drive-thru into a parking spot in the McDonald's parking lot and got their, were getting their order situated. He handed her, her nephew handed her the coffee. She put it between her knees to try to get the The uh, nephew was driving. Yeah, well, no, nobody was driving. Oh, nobody was driving because they were parked. Nephew had just parked the car. He was in the driver's seat sitting still. And the, Okay, but, you know, but still... But she was very badly burned. There was actually pictures in the movie, which was, oh, really? was really a little bit disturbing because there were really bad burns, and she had to have skin grafts and all this stuff. And oh. she never really recovered because she was really she was elderly. She was in her seventies already when it happened. Oh, um, and uh, wow, yeah. No, I mean the image you get from the like when you think of the case because of I guess I I, I only heard about it and commentary comedy yeah. and, and all of that. I mean, what I think of it as you know someone who's driving. Driving with one hand and holding yeah. the coffee with the other, and you know, precariously kind yeah. of just spilling it on themselves. That's what I. Yeah, it turned out McDonald's. Like ordering a hot coffee and then spilling yeah, it. It turned on out yourself. McDonald's had had seventy previous reports of of people being burned from their coffee being too hot, and they had ignored them and not taken care oh, of them. Really? Yeah. Wow. So discovered. there's like a real serious negligence component. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And and, and the the manual had them have it too hot as a holding temperature, 190 degrees Fahrenheit, which apparently is just way too hot as a holding temperature. Wow. Uh, which is now apparently 30 degrees lower or something for, huh. for most places. Uh, for wow. And all I keep thinking is that coffee is delicious with a tort. Yeah, but the, the, this is this was the whole thing was about was, was this question of what, what Ralph Nader and they said in the, the movie that he does call this tort deform, which is uh, basically taking away a part of the legal system from people to use against companies because in some cases their only weapon against companies is to file what's called a a tort case right so to back up a little bit i keep making this joke about torts being delicious pastries but um but and i haven't been to law school in over a decade but um because i'm old but um but torts are it's a wrong or a wrongful act in which someone is harmed and um and it covers all kinds of um of legal civil legal actions Mm -hmm. Uh, except for like contracts are accepted from it. And so I, I think uh, I, basically I wanted to tell people this was a pretty good documentary. It's worth seeing. And I think it's important to think about this issue and, and this idea that there was this group of businesses uh, around the country that fought to get people to spin the story and to get people to oppose. And I guess it really worked because I, I mean, at least I really, I had no idea. Well, I, I thought Carl, it was totally like frivolous basically lawsuit well this is how carl rove rose to power in texas he was carl rove was, carl rove was going around texas in the in the 80s getting campaigns funded including george w bush's campaign to be governor of texas uh by getting them to run on a platform of so-called tort reform to convince them to convince the, the companies to donate to their campaigns. So, wow. so these companies were just dumping money into politicians who would do, quote, tort reform, or as I'm now going to call it, thanks to Ralph Nader, tort deform. And oh, I th- that's interesting. And I think it's really an unfortunate outcome that, uh, that it has become more difficult to get these large judgments because companies sort of only understand money and punishment by having to pay a big settlement. Yeah, it's tough because I think we have a, a problem societally where I think, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think we have this really litigious society, and I think if we had kind of a cultural shift away from that, I, you know, it doesn't mean we necessarily need to change the laws. We just need to change the fact that people seem to like to file frivolous lawsuits or, 
I think I think what I learned from this documentary was that there are a lot fewer frivolous lawsuits than people realize, and and a lot of the big examples people. of frivolous lawsuits that have been characterized were not really frivolous when you look at the actual oh. facts of the case. I and mean, people threaten frivolous lawsuits all the time. I mean, I see it every day, and companies are terrified about it. And 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 there are a lot of ways which we lose out about that as a society. You know, like you know, we we've got this overprotection. You know, a lot of a lot of companies that are worried about being held responsible for something on their property mm-hmm. will will prevent ordinary kinds of activities and well, things that you would just know, you know, when you go outside the United States, you see, you know, docks without railings and things like that and you say, "Oh, that's nice. I know that I'm not going to be an idiot and walk my 2-year-old toddler onto the end of that, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know." Well, I think I, I mean, I think that to relate to some of the free software, I I've certainly been because I, because I run an organization that is a plaintiff in GPL enforcement suits, people are saying, "Oh, you shouldn't litigate, and the GPL shouldn't, there shouldn't be litigation." And there are people even out there saying that there'll be an end to litigation, and they're going to try and stop it. Well, it's not going to stop, I don't think, uh, because it needs to be used when, when you need to go to the courts. And I, I think the courts right. ought to be there as, as a resort for people who can't get. Uh, a company to pay attention to what they've done wrong. Yeah, I mean, right, on the licenses in particular, if there's never any enforcement ever on licenses, then it's almost as if you, you know, mm-hmm. why even use the license at all? Because eventually, if there is someone who doesn't respond to you, if there is someone who, when you ask nicely to comply, and you, you know, you expose them, you talk about it, whatever, if they don't comply, your only recourse is to sue. That's right. Um, so, you know, eventually it, it might have to come to that. I mean, I think we should try to avoid lawsuits at all costs, but... I don't think at all costs. I think that... that we at should all avo- costs. We, we should, av- should try to avoid it if, as much as we can. It should be the last thing you use. I agree with that. Uh, yeah, um, and I think there should be good, you know, good warfare, you know, good warning and a period of time to come into compliance. But after that, if there's no, you know, if there's no movement, then you have no choice. I think oh. if you want to use a license like a copyleft license, I agree with you. A, a lot of a lot of people out there don't. So uh, so I thought I'd bring that up. And I I think I think seeing this and comparing the torts situation uh, to the the GPL enforcement situation, I think is an interesting one. Uh, and I hope people will take check yeah, out. Yeah, it's that a document. wacky comparison. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I started thinking about whether. Uh, and and I guess it's not really clear whether that kind of tort lawsuit is something you can do with GPL or not. I, I think it's an open question. Well, uh, I don't. I, I think technically copyright infringement is part of tort, but I'm not sure. It is, but, it, well, but, but the thing is, the statute's so clear about what kind of harm you can get. It's not like you can go for big non-economic harm. I guess uh, you can get statutory damages, or you can get. Uh, get uh, actual damages, and that's outlined in the statute, as opposed to situations of oh, like uh, following open. common law tort. Yeah, I understand. So, mm. um, yeah, because the, the, when you have a non-economic harm open, you can sue for uh, a person lost their life. You can. It's hard to put a dollar value on that, but right. you can say punitively, we want them to pay this much because it's such a horrible thing that because of your negligence, this person lost their life. Right. I mean, I think for you know, license enforcement, the copyright statute is probably the right place. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. Although people have experimented, and I don't know if anything's ever going to come of it, of, of trying to use consumer fraud protection laws mm. and that sort of thing, because it's it's a if you if you knew there was GPL software in it and then you didn't tell the consumer, it's it's a form of fraud. Interesting. Um, and there's people who are pursuing and looking into that for upstreams um, in particular. 
Well, I, I don't want to say too much more about it. Um, there's, okay. a, there's a lawyer, actually, there's a lawyer in Australia. I can't say it this much. There's a lawyer in Australia named Brendan Scott who is uh, who has looked into this in Australia because apparently Australia has really good consumer protection laws, as it mm. turns out. So, uh, so he's looked into that uh, using their their consumer protection uh, rules. So he's he's you read his website. I'll link to it. He's he's written about it. So. Cool. And so we should move on to our next topic then, because that With was little, that was only vaguely connected. That a little musical one. intro. I couldn't tell during the. I, I couldn't tell listening to your um, your episode with Dan or one of them when he said that I always ask for a musical interlude whether that meant that it was going to be hard work or not. So now no, I'm loath so. to. You don't think so? All right, Dan. Thank you. Here's a musical interlude. So we get to be nonprofit geeks again. Right. Uh, so. This is a thing that's been going on for a while. I think you've actually spoken about it publicly. As I have. Talking. I have a few times. And I've been loath to talk about it um, too much because we're, in, we're still in a situation where we really just don't know that much. Um, so basically, as we said at the beginning, we're talking about applying for uh, 501c3 tax exempt status for, for organizations. So that means free software organizations that have incorporated as nonprofits and then apply to be recognized by the IRS as a charity. Um, and there are a lot of 501c3s that already exist in the free software space already, like the Free Software Foundation, the Apache Software Foundation, Software in the Public Interest. The Tangen GNOME Foundation. The GNOME Foundation. Uh, tangentially, the Software Freedom Law Center. Um, so the Software Freedom Conservancy as well as the Software Freedom Conservancy. So the the and we've Clone. talked <laughs> on previous shows about five hundred one c three versus five hundred one c six and so forth. And uh, folks heard my Floss Weekly interview a couple of weeks ago. I talked about that issue as well. And five hundred I sort of said five hundred one c three is the gold standard in the sense that you have the most tax deductions in both directions. And um, it's also a gold standard in terms of being a you know truly a community organization because 501c3s are charity or in this case are charities and they must conduct themselves appropriately and they must act in the public good and the public interest and all that sort of yep thing. there are no shareholders for instance no mem well there there may be members but they're it's it's different than like a 501c6 membership Right, which is a five, common business interest. Yeah, those are all businesses who are members. In yeah, five one c sixes. So I've been loath to talk about this because so I'll, I'll give you a little bit of backstory. I've at SFLC, one of my first jobs was to apply for tax exempt status for organizations. Um, I, uh, you know, I started out really just as a you know as a nonprofit lawyer and learning about nonprofits law. So I did a whole bunch of research on how to fill out and how to submit these applications and. You know, when I first started doing it, it was great. I I I built a template and I lobbed it in, and um, and the tax exempt status was granted. Um, Plone was the first one I worked on, um, and then later I did a bunch of others, including um, Conservancy. And um, and I would just keep using the same form and sending it in, just saying why free well, software use, is so good. To be clear, you use the exact same well, form. Well, I you, use a lot of the same some, language that yeah. said. You know, oh, you know, why free software is, is important to society and why it should be treated, why these organizations should be treated as charities. And then, and then I started sending in applications. So for years, this was the case. And then I started sending in the same applications and there would be these long, long wait times. Just long. 
And then um, eventually we would get back questions. And the first time I got questions back, um, it was for, uh, I guess I, I won't say who it was for because mm -hmm. I haven't talked to them about mm -hmm. saying it publicly, but it was for an organization that you wouldn't necessarily um, think of. It was a kind of software you wouldn't necessarily think of as, as in the public good. Um, and so I answered questions about why, and then that tax exempt status was granted as well. Um, but then after that, I guess around like, you know, 2010, the applications that we started sending in started stalling. And worse, other organizations that have submitted their applications had come to SFLC and to you. So what started happening early in my days uh, as full-time at Conservancy, uh, particularly at the Summer of Code Mentor Summit conference, folks started walking up to me because I gave a presentation. It's an unconference style, not a style I'm a fan of, but... Is what, what it was. So I gave a presentation about nonprofit status and running a nonprofit and how nonprofits work. And the audience was basically filled with people who had this problem. And a number of projects came up to me and said that they'd had their 51C3 application stalled for long periods of time. And they were getting questioned back and their, their counsel or whoever was helping them with the Form 1023, which is the form you file uh, to get 51C3 status, would answer the questions and then they would wait again. So finally, a few weeks ago, someone actually went well, actually, public. Well, before we, okay. we talk about that, I'll just say that I'm in uh, pretty advanced stages. And I say I am because I'm still doing some pro bono with SFLC. So even though I've moved to GNOME, I'm still, this is one of the projects that I think is so important that I'm going to stay involved in. Um, in some, you know, I, I probably won't do a lot of the you know, the, the heavy work on it, but I'm, I'm going to stay involved in, and, you know, this, I, I've been working on this for, for years now. Um, but there were a couple of different projects that we had several go-arounds for. One in particular where we answered, we went through three rounds of questions from the IRS, and then we were told that we were going to get refused unless we'd like to submit an additional statement. So, actually, and this was like, Thanksgiving weekend in the United States and I, uh, it was really funny, uh, crazy push to submit this um, paper. So it, we did, and I actually think it came out quite good. We submitted a, a position statement to the IRS and, um, and then silence. So the end of the period on that particular application for having reviewed this statement is going to come to a close next month. Um, and so I've been pretty quiet about it publicly because I don't want to speak about something I don't know about yet. I haven't seen any applications actually getting refused yet. I've just seen these really long wait times, and then in this one instance, a threat of refusal, but now no actual refusal. So I was waiting until we got a refusal notice. That way we could go, you know, we could really go public with it and talk about it. And whatever happens with that particular um, application, we will go public about it, um, and we will talk about it, and we'll give more information. So I can promise that there will be another episode that has a lot more substance. I just wanted to have this one to give some of the background, because another organization has now posted their story online. Well, so this is an organization called Cash Music, which is really focused on helping musicians find a way to uh, fund their work in, in a free culture sort of way. Uh, and they're writing software to help them do that. So mm -hmm. software and development of uh, open source and free software is part of their mission. And presumably they put that into their 1023. He didn't post his 1023 uh, application publicly, but he did indicate that it had a heavy component discussing the open source and free software that they were developing. 
and they are waiting and waiting and waiting and still waiting. And that's been the story from everybody yeah, that I I've talked to who's applied basically since around 2008, 2009. Yeah, I have, well, later, actually. Okay. The oldest application I have is 2009. Okay. Everybody else is 2010. Okay. And people think that six months is a long time, but in this world, it's, it's, it's not a very long time to wait. But a lot of organizations get C3 status much more quickly. That's sort of the point. Not, not so much anymore. Okay. Um, six months is kind of the, seems to be the minimum about now. Um, I'm sure. Oh, actually, I'm sorry. Sessions. I meant much more quickly than what's happened here. Oh, well, absolutely. Because I think what's happened is that the IRS just doesn't know how to deal with these software applica related applications. And they understand that there are some organizations that are, you know, develop, you know, that are created around software that should not be charities and some that probably should be, but they're not sure how to identify. I mean, this is my theory. I have no idea what's actually going on, but based on my conversations with them that, you know, they're, they're just confused and they've created a task force now um, and they're reviewing it. And I suspect we'll see a lot of these decisions all at around the same time. I'm guessing. Yeah. And, and my, my position has been that those of us who already have C3 status in the free software space really ought to be supportive of these folks. We're, as I understand it, we're not really in jeopardy. It's not like well, we're going to go back and revoke. specifically confirmed with various IRS agents that these applications and their review process um, does not affect any C3 that has already been granted. Now, I don't know how that, I, like, if it gets up to a ruling stage. So, for example, this application that I've been working on, if it gets refused, we're going to, you know, we would take it to tax court. We would appeal it as far as it needs to go in order to fight for C3 status for a good free software charity. Mm -hmm. um, and if a ruling comes back against, I don't know how, you know, that may affect existing nonprofits, but, you know, existing mm -hmm. nonprofits with tax exemption. But uh, I don't think so currently. The, the most you know, I'm glad I got the chance to submit that SFLC got to submit a, such a, a good statement about why free software is important. And I, I want to publish it, but I want to make sure that it's accepted before I recommend that people use it. You know what I mean? So I'm waiting to see if we get refused or, um, or granted or if there's any comments at all, because before you know, I put something out there, this is where giving legal advice is tricky. The thing that concerns me most in all this is there there are a number of projects uh, and I think Cash Music is sort of one and since he talked about it publicly we can mention that publicly but there are others that have talked to me as well that are seeking to do other types of public good by using software. One of them even said to me uh, that they got the impression that if they had just applied to do the work without mentioning software so they're doing public good work of other type and they're writing software to make that public work easier to do, but they put the fact that they were writing software to do it in their application, that, that their application would have gotten through without the software component, which is, that's really disturbing to me, this idea that you can't do the public's good by writing software. Yeah, uh, I suspect even, when the, even when the thing you're trying to get done, like the thing you're trying to write, is a pub is trying to serve the public good in itself. Like, like you argued about that one where, well, it was hard to say that this... That, that the software itself was necessarily in the public good. Well, actually, I thought it, it, it absolutely was. It's just yeah. when you looked at it. So basically, with the, the IRS, but I'm talking to, about ones on the you surface. You have to really look at your how your application will look. You know, for someone who skims it. So, for example, if your name sounds a little bit different, if it has software and people well, are going to say, "Oh, you know, yeah. that's a software-related thing," so it, is, it should be treated differently. I don't know if maybe the fact that Cash Music has cash in its name 
makes it you yeah. know subject to higher scrutiny. But you just have to sort of be careful. I always say that the IRS wants you know warm fuzzies, and it's true. I mean, they, you know, they they're anything that raises their their eyebrows. It means you should tell them fully what you're doing, but you can inadvertently describe things in a way that makes it look like you're trying to hide the fact that you're you know, doing something that would ordinarily be for profit. So I don't know. If you are thinking about applying for, um, for 501c3 status or if you're in this limbo, you know, I highly recommend contacting SFLC at Help At because we've got a, you know, I say we, they've got a whole initiative of, um, of 501c3s that, you know, that they're helping to, to work. And I'll, I'll be working on that too. So I, I think that we we have to be as supportive as possible as leaders of other C3 organizations for this. I, I, regardless of how it comes out for older organizations, I think it's rather bizarre that they're going to go back and revisit decisions made in, say, 1985 when FSF received its 501c3 status and, and when FSF's been doing public good work and filing its Form 990s and explaining on its Form 990s all these years how its public work is good. All of a sudden, they're going yeah. to decide. I think it's hard for people anymore. who aren't familiar with software to to understand. I mean, free software is hard to get, you know. And if you're not a developer, you're not, you know, you're, you're not, you don't already know what it is. So I think that's one of the biggest obstacles. Mm-hmm. That's something else I wanted to say, and I can't remember. So, so I, I think that this is an issue that we'll probably be discussing more. It's finally public, which basically is what's made it easier to talk about. I, I had a lot of organizations that came to me. And obviously, I'm not a lawyer, and I wasn't their lawyer, but they didn't give me permission to talk about it publicly, so I, I didn't want to mention that it was a trend. But now the, the fact that there's a trend is public, and folks should be paying attention to this, particularly in the U.S. It's, uh, it's a very troubling thing that's happening in the U.S. with regard to these organizations. Yeah. Yeah, it's been really interesting to watch. It's been fascinating to talk to the IRS, you know, agents about about this stuff. They really are are trying to Oh, I know what I wanted to say, which is that in one of the questions that so basically the IRS if they don't agree right away or they're not sure, they'll give you a list of questions that you need to answer on behalf of the organization and say why you should be granted tax exempt status. And they'll ask all sorts of things. Um, but one of the questions that they asked, which was most alarming, was had the sentence, developing software is a commercial activity. Please explain why this organization should be granted you know, charitable status. And it was really interesting. Was, you know, a lot of things are commercial potentially. You know, you can practice medicine in a commercial way. You can practice law in a commercial way, but the Software Freedom Law Center or um, the ACLU or, you know, I mean, there are loads of legal clinics that practice law in a nonprofit way. And I mean, that's that's basically what we what we said in our response, but it was very interesting. So it just kind of indicates what the mindset of the IRS has been. And I think that their goal, or I don't know, I think one of the things that's been happening with this long wait time is that a lot of nonprofits have been dropping out. It's just not practical for a lot of these organizations to, to carry on without their tax exempt status. And because it's taking years, the funding doesn't hold up. And there's, you know, a lot of, a lot of grants that maybe they've had lined up won't be able to, you know, the, the grantors are not willing to, to give the money until the charitable status is recognized. So a lot of these organizations are dropping out on their own accord. And I don't know I don't know that that's part of an IRS strategy, but that seems to be a side effect, which is in some ways a shame. On the other hand, you know, the charities that are going to hang on and get status are going to make a good precedent for everybody else. 
Well, my view is the precedent's already made with organizations like well, SF. I, I think so, but clearly the IRS is reevaluating this fresh. Yeah. I, I had trouble uh, when I was on the board of directors of a user group in the mid-90s helping them understand GNU Linux was a community-oriented activity. And the IRS was asking all sorts of questions because they saw it as being like a Solaris users group or a Windows users group. Uh, and they said, well, you're just promoting somebody else's product. Uh, and that I, that, I think, what, what happened was the organization did just drop its 501c3 application, didn't really need it anyway for what it wanted to do, so it didn't matter. But user groups are very different than advocacy organizations and organizations trying to develop software in a public good, public charity sort of manner. And I think, I think it's really disturbing that people out there think that writing software is a commercial activity. It, 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 I understand your point completely that the IRS needs to be taught and they don't understand it yet. But the fact that the rest of the world thinks that, that writing software is about making money, I mean, that, tr that troubles me greatly. The greatest authors of software did it because they loved it. Some of them made a lot of money, some of them didn't. I mean, even when you take back to people like Bill Gates, who well, is sort of the worst example, he he enjoyed working on the computers. But that's, uh, enjoying initially. your job is something different, okay? Most people encounter software through a commercial outlet. I agree with so, you completely. You know, I, and most people, especially folks at the IRS, are not that's developers. That's the problem we're fighting against as a, as a community, right? We're fighting against this idea that software is just about making money. It's a, making money is a secondary thing to freedom. And I think... It, it, the thing that upsets me is not that they don't get it. Uh, that's more our fault than it is theirs in some sense because I have a well, we're, we're working My, on it. <laughs> the thing I'm upset about is that is that how badly free software advocacy has failed. That that there's most people in the world still think software is about making money, and that's what matters. And that just it just really disheartens well, me. Well, I don't know that that's I I don't know that that's failure. I mean, I think more people are aware of software freedom and the you know other aspects. It's not failure because we're not done. That's true. But yeah, we're still working than, on it. Than they but. did before the FSF was created, for example. Yeah, yeah. So I, I don't know. I think that's really harsh. I mean, I think that if you want to say cite failure, that you know the percentage of software that's free software is increasing, but not all software, then I think you're going to feel like a failure for the rest of your life. No, well, I know. I'm, I've, already, I've already. I live with the fact that I'll be that I will die a failure because I'm going to die in a uh. world with proprietary software. I mean, that's clear that it's, it's going to take many generations to eradicate proprietary software. So, so I, I've come, I'm come to terms with the idea that uh, I'll die a failure. Uh, but You won't die a failure if there's some proprietary software out there. Well, of course, I'll fail to my mission. I mean, I can't succeed in my mission in my lifetime. You need just, to redefine success. <laughs> th there's only one definition of success, the end to proprietary software, the, the, the freedom of all software users. That's the only... That's the only metric of success in free software. You have to, it's just one we can't reach in our lifetime. You have lifetimes. to measure steps, success steps. You know, achieving steps towards that goal is being success. Well, I, I, I mean, I, I, I still work 12 hours a day. It's not like I'm so disheartened that I gave up. Uh, but it's, it's, we, we have a long way to go is what I'm, I'm saying. I'm rolling my eyes. There's so many people who don't even, who think that software is just about making money. Uh, and that there's no. In any event, it is also about making money, and there's nothing wrong with that either. No, it's it's an it's an activity that you can get paid for. It's just not appropriate in a 501c3. I disagree with the way you're saying it because I I, I think it's an activity. It, what you were saying before, I agree with a lot more. It's an activity that you can do, 
and it's an activity you can get paid to do, but it can be done for all sorts of reasons, uh, just like practicing yeah, law. Yeah, no, just absolutely. Like but making that, money is a big part of writing software. A lot of people are motivated to write software because it makes them money. Whether they're writing software that's free software, you know, is you know, a lot of people insist on it, and they should. Well, I just people uh, who write software primarily to make money at it write shitty software. That, well, I that I've learned because people, true. it's I think it's absolutely true. People who choose to do software instead of like business or some other field. A lot of people really, you know, love their jobs. Yes, and especially if it's combined. If they love writing software and writing free software, it's part of it. That's you know, different. I don't know. I mean, would people, they still do it? So, if so, so this. Some I, people clearly. I would. think I've talked this about on the podcast before, but when I went to to college, it was right at the end of the real boom in people majoring in computer science because they heard they could make a lot of money because it was the most lucrative field for a long period of time. I don't know if it still is. It probably I thought isn't. I read some statistic that it has. there's been an uptick recently. Yeah, recently, but, the, but there's been multiple periods around the world. But during the 90s, when I was in college, early 90s, that was the real uptick. And the early 90s was the first boom in some sense. I mean, there was the dot-com boom, but that was actually more people moving from other fields who were already graduated. People didn't choose the major for that. Uh, but people were really choosing the major of computer science in the early 90s because they heard you can make money at it. And I knew the difference between people who were majoring it because of why I did, because I never wanted to do anything else in my life. All I ever cared about was was making software and making the computer do important, interesting things and 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 making it easier to use and all these sorts of things. Uh, but other people were just clearly there to make the money. It was like they just, they were like trying to get the credential. And well, there's I, a big difference. I don't finish. There's a big difference between those two types of people. And the, the latter type, they, they write crap. They write crap because they, they don't, closing a bug to them is a way to get a paycheck. Closing a bug has to be, to, to actually really care, closing a bug has to be, this has to work right. You have to, you have to have that obsession, that feeling that, 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 that this is wrong, that the software doesn't work right. But writing software to make money doesn't mean that you don't have pride in your work. Doesn't mean that you're not, you know, you're not going to want to do a good job. I actually went to law school for a whole host of reasons, but one of them was that it seemed like an interesting thing to learn about that I had a chance at a stable career at. Um, and then I wound up working in a nonprofit. Right, space. that's you had mixed reasons. See, that's my whole point. Is is your reason wasn't primarily you there's a lot of people who go to law school to yeah, just because they want to make tons of money. People are often more complex than that. And most people aren't, you know, don't have one single reason for doing something. And I know a lot of people who fell into a job because it was the job that was available at the moment and they didn't know what they were doing and they found out or they really, you know, they they cared about their mm-hmm. own work. They cared they had pride in what they did and they wanted to do a good job became invested in it. And I don't I, I just think those things are often mixed up. I think it's really cartoonish to say that they're not. I think there are some people who are only in their jobs for the money and that's true in software, of course. And a lot of people a lot of people in that set are only in the jobs for the money and are going to do a shitty job because they only want to do the minimum that they can to get their paycheck. But I just don't think that that necessarily encompasses everyone. And in software it's especially tough because when you, you know, the kind of engagement it requires to write good software you know, so a lot of people are very interested in it. That do it, find it intellectually stimulating, even if they're, even if they don't care about the freedom aspect, which I think they should. Right. Well, I, I was actually making a more general point. I mean, if they, if they don't care, if if it doesn't offend their sensibilities that the software doesn't work right, they're never going to be good at writing software. It has to it has to be personal in some sense. 
And, and that's, that's free versus, that's not free versus proprietary. That's totally separate right. from that issue. Uh, and people can write, there is, there are proprietary software programs that are well written because, uh, because people have that feeling. I know people have to, but my point is, is that, that there are a lot of people out there because there's a lot of crap software out there because people are just doing it because they want to make money. I think it's most programmers. Most programmers, of course, most programmers in the world are writing in things like COBOL, right? I and mean, that's the other point, is that a lot of the software out there is just, is just crap that people are writing because it's a paycheck. Is that still true? It's a, there's a lot of COBOL. Yeah. Go, go, open up the newspaper. It's always the newspaper, right? It's not online jobs. But open the newspaper and see how many COBOL. There's tons of... There's huh. millions of lines. This is why I keep saying Perl is, is going to be the new COBOL. Because there's millions and billions of lines of Perl code out there. And the way that there's millions and billions of lines of COBOL code out there that, that are running critical systems. Hmm. Uh, and that's why I, uh, Perl people get upset when I say that. But it kind of is. Perl 5, at least, is sort of the new COBOL. Anyway, I, it's really important that the IRS be brought on, on yeah. board with this because... For all of the issues that we talk about, but also because the software that's developed from the nonprofit standpoint is so important, and the nonprofit model is such an important way to develop software, and you know, and a, an important yeah. way to encourage and promote free software. Yeah, you're correct. We we went way off topic with this money thing. It just, we did. It's because I, my, it offends my sensibility so much that 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 because you said that sentence again, which you had told me before privately, that where they said. Uh, Given that software is a commercial activity, comma. Yeah, developing, uh, writing software if, is a commercial activity. If folks go back activity. and listen to the recording, you'll notice that's where I went off on this kind of ranty well, side. And because it's, it was so, it's so offensive. It's, it's an incredibly offensive. obnoxious thing for the, for, for the examiner to write anyway. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it was, it, that point was just kind of laughable because of all of the, you know, all of the nonprofits that exist that are professions that could have been done in a for-profit way. Um, it's just, it, it's very insightful at the same time because it shows you what the IRS how is thinking. How far they yeah, are. Yeah, exactly. Like how, exactly. Far, like, like how far you have to get them to move. That's the disturbing yeah. so thing. So I was really, really glad for the opportunity to write a statement to address that in particular and to address the entire issue. But it's a big challenge because they're so far from where you're at. You yeah. have to really sort of pull them. Yeah. So, so we'll see. We'll have more news for you in a couple of months, um, at, I believe. Unless the IRS just delays it again, Unless because the they can. It's their problem. But I actually don't think that uh, there are deadlines, and you, you can sue the IRS if you need to. <laughs> <laughs> Which relates to our earlier discussion. Uh, yeah, well, not right. But it's not tort-related or frivolous-related. Or frivolous, I believe. Anyway, I think that pretty much covers it. There's more that we can talk about, about you know whether or not a 501c3 is necessary, whether... You know what the advantages are, and whether just conducting your nonprofit activities in a for-profit construct is sensible. And you know, some people brought that up in some discussions that I read. But I think this kind of sets forth the issue, and we'll have another one later. Okay, so that's uh, that wraps us up for this episode. Great, freedom, freedom. Reason Freedom is produced by Dan Lynch of HalfBakedMedia.com. Thanks to Mike Tarantino for our theme music. Reason and Freedom is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 Unported License. Please provide any feedback to Obcast at faif.us.
This is episode 13 of Free as in Freedom for Tuesday, July 12th, 2011. Uh, Karen, actually, we're releasing this a week before that. It's my fault. I told you the wrong date when I asked you to record that. So people heard my intro. At least I got to say Common Era. <laughs>